0: Bibles and turn with me to Paul's epistle to the Romans. And chapter 7 will be in verses 1 through 6 this morning. Paul's letter to the Romans. Our sermon is entitled The Believer's New Marriage. The Believer's New Marriage. As we continue to walk verse by verse through the book of Romans and our sermon series, God's Righteousness Revealed. We come to chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 1 through 6. The text reads, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress If she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh... Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the Word of God. Let us hear it and let us heed it. What a blessing it is to have God's Word given to us, read to us. Pray that we will. I'll explain it faithfully and that we will apply it to our lives. I wonder if any of you have an old family Bible at home. Maybe it's something that you got when you were young. Maybe it was given to you when you were first married. Or even better, maybe you inherited it from a parent or grandparent, a beloved relative of some kind, one of the things that is good about those old family Bibles is that often in the front section of those Bibles, there are places to write and track big life events. You know, there is a place to track births, to write down deaths. A place to track marriages and anniversaries. These are the sort of big life events that are common to every culture. It is by these events that you and I measure the passage of time by births, by weddings, by deaths. It's really one of the joys, I believe, of being a pastor of a congregation for an extended length of time. And it's something that I'm looking to forward to the longer that I stay here at PVBC. You get to observe the passage of time, not only in your own life, in the life of your own family, but in the life of the families of your congregation. Now these events, sure, they're not always happy, especially when we're talking about deaths and those who are no longer with us. There is pain, there is heartbreak. But the Lord gives us the gift of time to provide us with perspective. And we realize that all of these events are superintended by the sovereign and invisible hand of God. Do you know what else is often marked in those family Bibles? Conversions, which are celebrated by baptisms of individuals. The interesting thing about conversion is that Paul uses all of these other life events that we have just talked about, death and marriage and and birth, to describe the nature of our conversion. you ever thought about that? First of all, your conversion is a celebration of a birth. Jesus told Nicodemus that if you were to inherit the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You must be born by the Spirit from above. We call this new birth regeneration. But secondly, if you're converted, you're not only celebrating a new birth, but you are celebrating a death as well. It is the death of the old self. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are crucified together with Christ, Your baptism in water represents your death and burial with Christ and your resurrection again to new life. Chapter 6 of Romans talked about how when we were converted, we died to sin. Today's passage will say that we are also now dead to the law. At conversion, there is a death. But this death isn't sad. One of the great lines of one of these old westerns I think it was a Clint Eastwood movie but I'm not sure exactly is I'm all right with a little killing as long as the right people get killed well that's what happened at conversion these are good deaths the right people get killed your old self namely is the one who gets killed we die to sin and to the law Now you're alive to righteousness, alive to God, alive in Jesus Christ. We just described conversion as a rebirth. It is also a resurrection. But conversion is not only a rebirth and a resurrection. It is also a marriage, a remarriage, really. By faith we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really the argument that Paul is trying to make in our passage here in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. See, back in chapter 6, in verse 14, Paul said almost in passing that we are now not under law, but are now under grace. Well, a statement like that to an audience like the one that Paul had demands an explanation. So now in chapter 7, Paul is giving an explanation of what he meant by the fact that you are no longer under law, but now under grace. He's talking about the believer's new relationship that is free from the law. And it's really the subject of law that is the clear theme of Romans chapter 7. Paul uses the term law 27 times in this chapter long, and 8 of those uses are in our passage here in these six verses. Many of the same points that Paul has made in chapter 6 about sin and sin personified, he now makes in chapter 7 about the law. Just as sin was personified in chapter 6, the law is personified in chapter 7. In chapter 6, the believer has died to sin and been set free from it in Christ. Now we find that we have also died to the law and been set free from it in Christ. In chapter 6, this new freedom from the power of sin now allows the believer to serve righteousness and bear fruit for God. Well, again, the same is true of the law. Freedom from the law means that we are now allowed to serve God through His Spirit and we produce a harvest that is pleasing to God. As we jump right into our passage, I want you to see in verse 1, the first point, the audience of the passage. The audience of the passage. Paul first says, do you not know brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Some have taken Paul's use of the word brothers here, and the fact that he describes these brothers as those who know the law, to suggest that Paul is primarily talking to an ethnically Jewish audience, maybe a, a, a group of Jewish Christians. Some have even suggested that Paul has switched the audience that he was talking to and is not now primarily talking to those who are Jewish Christians there in the church at Rome. But I don't think the statement here requires that kind of interpretation at all. Surely some of the church in Rome was indeed made up of ethnically Jewish Christians. But it is clear from the first chapter that most of the believers in the church of Rome at this time were Gentiles. In chapter 1 verse 5, Paul says that the purpose of his apostleship is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you, he says who are called to belong to Jesus Christ to those in Rome. A few verses later, in verses 13 and 15, he says that he hopes to reap some harvest among them just as he has among the rest of the Gentiles. So it seems to suggest that he has primarily a Gentile Christian audience in mind. I don't think it's necessary at all to restrict the phrase those who know the law only to Jewish Christians. Douglas Moo argues that it's very likely that many of the Gentile Christians in Rome had previously been what is called God-fearers. That is, before the time of Christ, they were those who were Gentiles and uncircumcised, but they were proselytes to Judaism. They would attend synagogue worship every Sabbath, even though they were Gentiles god fears It's a comment upon all Christians, really, Jewish and Gentile, to know the law and to be acquainted with the Hebrew Scriptures, that which we call the Old Testament. When Paul says he is talking to people who know the law, he knows that anyone who attends regular church meetings in Rome is aware of the teaching of the Old Testament Scriptures. Furthermore, as those who know the law, it is important that these Christian brothers and sisters be fully aware of their new relationship with the law now that they believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So he's saying, I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to be fully aware. I want you to know, brothers, because you do know the law. I want you to know your status now with the law. The second thing I want you to see from verse 1 is the axiom of the law. Not just the audience of the passage, but the axiom of the law What Paul then speaks to these brothers who obviously know the law is a general principle about the law that is self-evidently true. He says the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Even though the the word law can have a lot of different meanings, even in Scripture itself, it can be used in different ways. Overwhelmingly, throughout chapter 7, the word law is referring to the law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, the law of God or the Mosaic law. To say that the law then is binding on a person means that it remains over them as a power and authority in their life. Therefore, this is saying that at death, the law ceases to have power and authority over a person. This is so obvious on the face of it that it's axiomatic. The rabbis had a saying at the time that is very similar to Paul's. They said if a person is dead, he is free from the Torah or the law and the fulfilling of the commandments. Jem MacArthur states plainly, no matter how serious a criminal's offenses may be, he is no longer subject to prosecution and punishment after he dies. That's just self-explanatory. If you go down to any criminal court in the nation, you'll notice that no dead men are being subjected to trials. We don't prosecute and punish dead people. That's because, as Paul says, the law is no longer binding on them after they're dead. It is only binding on a person as long as that person lives. Thirdly, I want you to see the analogy of marriage. In verses 2-3, through I want you to see the analogy of marriage. The next thing that Paul does in our passage is to illustrate the principle that he has just stated with an analogy about marriage. He's saying that the law's jurisdiction only until death is clearly illustrated in the example of marriage and adultery. In verse 2, Paul states... A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Note here that the word married in this case literally means under a husband. That this is a woman who is under a husband. Notice that this married woman is described as bound by the law. Just as in the last verse where Paul spoke of the binding authority of the law So he does again in the case of the married woman. While her husband is alive, they are bound to each other by law. But if one of them dies, they are released from the law regarding marriage. We even say this much in our wedding vows, don't we? When we say, till death do we part. We make our promises before God to our spouse and then we say, until death do we part. Part These vows are only in play as long as we are both alive. Next he says, Accordingly, this woman shall be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So any married person... Who lives with another person while their spouse is still alive is subject to the law regarding adultery. He or she may rightly be called and condemned by the law as adulterers. But on the other hand, if a married person has his or her spouse die, then that person is free to marry another person without impunity. It is obvious to us that widows and widowers are free to remarry. They are not open to the charge of adultery. Death has released them from their vow, nullified their covenant, and the law of marriage has ceased to have authority over them. God will not hold widows who uh, remarry guilty of the sin of adultery because the death of their spouse set them free from the law of marriage. Again, Paul uses this example of marriage... To demonstrate that the law is only binding on a person so long as that person lives. Death severs the power of the law over that person. By the way, to, to draw dogmatic conclusions from this passage about marriage and divorce and remarriage really misses the point of the passage in its context. This passage is really not teaching on any of that. Paul is simply drawing from a common experience of marriage to illustrate a point that he is making about the nature of the law and its jurisdiction. When a person is using a concept like marriage as an example, they often speak of it generally without going into every little detail or exception of which they assume their audience is readily aware. Paul is likely doing that in this case. Fourthly, I want you to then see the application to believers. The application to believers in verse 4. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. To him has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Paul begins in verse 4 with the word likewise. He wants to apply the analogy that he's just made about marriage to the situation and the life of the believer and their relationship to the law of God. Moo summarizes the point that Paul is making. He says, recognizing the validity of the principle that death severs one's bondage to the law, you believers can understand that, like this woman, you have through death been severed from your bondage to the law and have been enabled to join another. You see that as a lost person, you were under the authority of the law. You were under law. It is like you were married to the law. The law was your first husband, if you will. But the law can't die. It is permanent. Jesus Himself said He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He said that heaven and earth would pass away before one jot or tittle of the law would ever pass away or be abrogated. Yet though the law itself isn't dead, as the analogy demonstrates, a death has indeed occurred. Paul says that one who has died is not the law, it is you. You have died. It says, verse 4, you also have died to the law. Likewise, down in verse 6, we find that as believers, we have died to that which held us captive. Back in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 19, Paul says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. When did this death occur? When did we die? When we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ is when we died. At our conversion, Robert Haldine says, Death Dead to the law by the body of Christ means dead to it by dying in Christ's death. Your death with Christ has been clearly presented throughout the book of Romans, especially the last chapter. In verses 4 and 5 of chapter 6, Paul says, "...we were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father..." we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united, he says, with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Then on down in verse 8, he says, Now if we have died with Christ, we will believe that we will also live with Him. And back in verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And verse 11 of chapter 6, So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Notice that is exactly how verse 4 describes our death. It says that we died to the law. What does it mean to be dead to the law? Well, first, I think it essentially has the same meaning as in verse 6 when it says that you have been released from the law. It means that we've been delivered from the power sphere of the law. We are no longer under the law in respect to its power to award life or death. You see that Paul is describing our former relationship with the law and our new relationship with Christ as like two marriages. We were previously married to the law and therefore bound to it while we were married to it. But through faith we have now died and that death severed our previous marriage to the law. Now we're then free to marry another, even Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what verse 4 says. You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. So the believer's new husband then is Jesus Christ our Lord. This new husband, I want you to see, can never die. Uh, This marriage can't end. Our text says that he has been raised from the dead. The resurrection is permanent and it is eternal. Back in chapter 6 verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. So death cannot sever this marriage that believers enjoy with Christ, not even when we die. Because we already have experience, already have the workings of eternal life within us even now, spiritual life. So that death is not death for us. We can approach our own physical death with confidence that we will still belong to Him. Will forever be with him. John Murray says we can hardly suppress the application at this point of the permanency of the bond after the analogy of the marriage bond. He says, Union with Christ in his death must never be severed from union with Christ in his resurrection. Do you remember the woman in the analogy? who married another man while her first husband was still alive. She was guilty and opened herself up to the charge of adultery. She was liable to the condemnation that being adulterous brings. But do you remember how that changed if her first husband was dead? She was free to remarry remarry at that time. No charges of adultery could be brought against her. In the same way, our former husband, the law, cannot bring charges against us in order to condemn us because that relationship has been severed by death. I'll say that again in case you miss it. Our former husband, your former husband, the law, if you're a believer, cannot bring charges against you in order to condemn you because that relationship has been severed by your death to the law. We are free from the law and free from its condemnation. That's how come in chapter 8 and verse 1 he can say there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law, you're dead to it. And your new marriage relationship is a better relationship and not an abusive relationship and not a condemnatory but a saving relationship. John MacArthur again says, In response to faith in his son, God makes the believing sinner forever dead to the condemnation and penalty of the law. So, as a believer, this ought to be extremely comforting to us, it's sure it ought to bring us assurance. You are as completely, listen, you are as completely and blamelessly free from the covenant of the law as if you had never been under it at all. Fifthly, I want you to see the argument from conversion. The argument from conversion, verses 5 through 6. In 5 and 6, Paul takes the application that he's just made in verse 4 about the believer's death to the law and his new marriage to Jesus Christ, and he expands upon that. As he's done before, he draws a contrast between the relationship that we had with the law in our previously unsaved life and now the relationship that we have with the law in this new converted, redeemed life that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. He begins by then talking about the old life that he lived in the flesh. That word flesh, he says, We go. he says, now we are released, oh, he says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That word flesh, it's going to be a, an important word, especially in chapter 8 where he talks more and more about the flesh versus the spirit. It's possible to use the word flesh in a very neutral sort of way. We can just talk about flesh and blood or flesh as a, a hunk of flesh. The Bible can describe Jesus Christ as a person in the flesh. It often does. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Romans 8.3. For God has done with the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. So we know if, if Jesus is described as being in the flesh or having flesh, then that word is not inherently evil or inherently sinful in any way. But, oftentimes, and as it is in this passage, the word flesh has a negative connotation it is used this way uh, throughout the New Testament flesh and I'll give you some definitions people have described it as the natural human existence apart from God our flesh is the old Adam within us our flesh is the unregenerate former life of those who now believe our flesh is our unredeemed humanness It is the remnant of the old self which will remain with each believer until he or she receives her glorified new body. It is that which envelops the non-Christian and is controlled by the world's principles and values. It is man in his ruined condition. It is the state then of total corruption in which all children of Adam are born. So listen to the following verses where flesh is used in that way. Ephesians 2 3. We also once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that will he also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Notice it even talks about the kind of harvest, the harvest of death and corruption that will come from sowing to the flesh. So this is a description of those who are living in the flesh. And it is a description that Paul uses then to describe us in our previous life before we believed in Jesus. At that time we were living in the flesh. But believers are no longer living in the flesh as it were. We can certainly still commit deeds that are of the flesh, but we can never again be in the flesh in the sense that it is used here. Our corrupt, sinful, unregenerate nature has now been redeemed. We've undergone and are undergoing a metamorphosis that we talked about. But notice that what Paul says the law did to us while we were still living in the flesh. The law didn't quell the sin that was within us. The law didn't prevent us from sinning. In actuality, it was just the opposite. Paul says that the law aroused the sinful passions already within us. Our sinful passions are those desires to disobey God and His law that are themselves exacerbated by the law itself. The desires that are stemming from the corrupt mind to want that which is forbidden by God. This is similar to something that Paul has already said in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. He said there that the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He'll expand upon this idea and explain this process of the of the law arousing sin within us in the upcoming verses of our passage. But for now, I just want to note that as lost souls, the law didn't help us at all. The law wasn't a force to prevent sin within us, but actually promoted sin within us. This sin affected our whole person working itself throughout all of our members, it says. And the harvest then that we Produced at that time was death. The wages and the crop of this sin is death. The result of the law's influence upon us as natural men is death. Only death. Death is the gloomy outcome and the fearful outcome of our sinning to the law. Back in chapter 6 verse 21, Paul asks, What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? The end of those things is what? Death. Again, Robert Haldane says, the law is a covenant of works. Not only cannot produce fruits of the righteousness and those who are under it, but it excites in them the motions of sin, bringing forth fruit unto death. But all of that is now changed for us after we have believed. We have died to the law that has held us captive, it says in verse 6. We have been released by death from our first marriage that brought us nothing but misery and abuse. That marriage was like slavery, like an imprisoned confinement. But this new marriage to Jesus Christ has brought love and freedom. You might be hearing all of this being said this morning and asking yourself, If I, as a believer, am no longer under the law, if I am dead to the law and I've been released from the law, then is there any need for me as a believer to obey the commandments of God? Well, I want you to see that freedom from the law is not the freedom to do what God's law forbids. Paul has already made this abundantly clear in the book of Romans. Romans. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, he says. Verse 15, 15 of that same chapter. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means, he says. But a slightly different question than that is does the law of God have any role in the life of the believer at all? And I think, yes, of course it does. Our sanctification is guided by the moral law of God. Obedience to God or holiness looks like conformity to the Ten Commandments. The more sanctified that we become, the more that our lives will reflect obedience to the commandments themselves. Jesus Himself said, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Galatians 6.2 says that we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 7.19 says neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Well, then how then are we to describe this new relationship that we have with the law in our lives? Calvin distinguished between the law as an office and the law as a rule of life. Other times, and usually what you'll hear people say is they describe the law as a covenant and the law as a rule of life. You and I, as believers, no longer are under the law as a covenant, but we are under the law as a rule of life. We are dead to the law as a covenant, we are released from the law as a covenant. But we are still to obey the law as a rule of life. Houdin says a covenant implies promises made on certain conditions with threatenings added. If such conditionings be not fulfilled. There are aspects of the law that we see in the Bible that say, do this and live. That's the law as a covenant. If you'll do it, you'll live. But we can't do it and we, don't, and we die, Right? If you will enter into life, Jesus says, keep the commandments to the rich young ruler. He's giving him the law as a covenant to show that he can't keep the commandments. Again, the Bible says, cursed is everyone who fails to do all the things written in the book of the law. Has anybody done all that is written in the book of the law? No? If you had, you just committed another. You just broke that by lying, right? So we were naturally under the curse. But Christ has become a curse for us in order to redeem us from what is called the curse of the law. And it is that curse that we are now free from, the curse of the law as a covenant. It is not do this and live, but now you're alive, now do this. Sinclair Ferguson emphasized that it is these contractual Obligations and conditions of the law that we've been delivered from. This is legalism. It's works righteousness. It is not the covenant of God's grace. He stresses that as believers we can now delight in God's law as David did instead of only seeing, hearing, and feeling the dread of the thunder and lightning of Mount Sinai. Haldane says that when Luther discovered the distinction between the law as a covenant and the law as a rule, it gave such relief to his mind that he considered himself at the gate of paradise himself, itself. Lastly, I want you to see the aim of the passage. The aim of the passage. I think there are very quickly three aims. First of all is for us to believe in Christ. How, does, how are we released from the, our first marriage to the law? How are we released from this bondage it is through the body of Christ, he says. We are, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, and verse 10 says, By that will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Let me ask you a question. Are you married to Christ? Have you been united to Christ by faith? Faith is that which unites you to Christ, which marries you to Christ. Are you still married to the law? You are either one or the other. You're not a free agent ever in this. Luther would say, it is impossible for a man to be a Christian without having Christ. And if he has Christ, he has at the same time all that is in Christ. What gives peace to the conscience is that by our faith, our sins are no more ours but Christ upon whom God has laid them all. And that on the other hand, all Christ's righteousness is ours to whom God hath given it. Christ lays His hand upon us and we are healed. Christ, He casts His mantle upon us and we are clothed. John fourteen six. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. 1 John 5, 12, Jesus promised, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Not only are we to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but secondly, it is for us to serve in the power of the Spirit. For us to serve in the power of the Spirit. Do you see now that he says at the end of verse 6, so that now in our in our converted life we serve in a new way, not like the old way, in a new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. In chapter eight in verse four of Romans says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So we will fill what the law demands by not by not looking to the law, but looking to God's Spirit and relying upon God's Spirit in the power of God's Holy Spirit, not in the power of the written Word. John Murray says, Believers no longer serve in the servitude which law ministers, but in the newness of the liberty of which the Holy Spirit is the author. Robert Haldane said, is the service not of the hireling, but of the son, not of the slave, but of the friend not with a view of being saved by keeping of the law, but of rendering grateful obedience to their Almighty Deliverer. He says, Serving in the oldness of the letter is serving in a cold, constrained, and wholly external manner. Such service is essentially defective, proceeding from a carnal, unregenerate heart, destitute of holiness." So the aim of the passage is first of all for us to believe in Christ. Second of all for us to serve in the power of the Holy Spirit. And lastly for us to bear fruit for God. In our old life we bore fruit for death. Now we are bearing fruit for God. Jesus said if you abide in me you will bear much fruit. It will prune us so that we will bear more fruit. Note that God has not released us from the law for no purpose. He has a positive purpose. He has released us from the law so that we might be married to another. And through this marriage, this new marriage that we have with Jesus Christ, we will now, for the first time in our life, bear fruit for God. We will bear fruit that is pleasing to Him. We will do good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for the Word that You've given to us, preached to us. We thank You, O oh Lord, that we have died to the law by faith in Jesus Christ and that we are married to a new, a new uh, husband, Jesus Christ. We're so thankful, O oh Lord, um, for this freedom that it, this provides. The fruit that is born of this relationship. We're grateful, Lord, for the Spirit that you have given to us so that He may work in our lives, so that we may serve you well and bear this fruit. I pray, O oh Lord, knowing that there's a temptation in us for us always to go back to our first marriage, there's a temptation for us to to look again to the law and to be controlled by the law and to try to earn Your favor by obedience to the law. And I pray, O Lord, that we would not fall into that trap. We would not fall into that gospel, that non-gospel. But that we, O Lord, would depend upon Your grace and look to Christ in all things as our new a uh, person to whom we belong. We're so thankful that we may belong in Christ. And I pray that everyone here would believe in Him, that they may know Him. They know the, may know the freedom from the law that He provides, the freedom from the condemnation that comes to us. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We pray all of these things, O oh Lord, in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.